Hello and welcome to another episode of What Comes Next, a show all about the technologies that will shape your future. I'm Rob Kellner. I'm Amy Dickens. And I'm Kwaku Akonmensa. Hi and welcome back to AI for Good, our special four-part series all about how AI is being used to tackle some of humanity's biggest challenges. We're publishing a new episode every Thursday throughout the month of May, so make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you go back to listen to previous episodes as well. This is episode three now, so you've got two more to listen to. To make this series, we teamed up with two awesome companies, Microsoft UK and the Social Tech Trust, who are doing some really cool work in the AI for Good space. We've put some links to some of the information in the show notes, so make sure you go there and check it out. All right, so let's get started with our first interview. My interview is opening the show today, so I'm very excited about that. I'm speaking to Jordi Fernandez, who's the CEO of a company called Benetalk. Jordi describes Benetalk as kind of like a Fitbit for speech, and that's a really good comparison, but it's also a bit more than that. It's this really awesome and I think important combination of wearable app online counseling and eventually personalized support delivered via an AI that helps people who stutter to kind of access training and support to control their stutters. So here's Jordi to explain a bit more. So I am a person who stutters. I started I started stuttering when I was five and I could not say my name properly until late 20s. I failed many things in my life just because I could not speak. I went to many speech and language therapists across my life, and what I found is that speech and language therapy works. The problem is that you don't have uh, the willingness or the, 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 the willpower to practice all the time, because when you go to a speech and language therapy, you have one hour or two hours of uh, therapy sessions during the week. So you have a lot of time where you can practice in your own. And that is when the idea came up. So we should use any available time that we have during the week or during the day and during daily activities to practice and that is the focus of our product it's interesting you make it sound like a form of fitness or a technique in that you kind of have to maintain it and keep it sharp yes completely because the thing is uh, i say always that to me speech therapy is like going to to the gym so uh, once you go into the rhythm, onto the uh, rhythm of using techniques to, that you use to improve your speaking habits, uh, the moment that you stop going to the gym the, is the moment that you start to to relapse. So there is no problem if you stop going to the gym during some time, but if you don't go to the gym again, uh, you will start to go to the old habits. So. Uh, what we are building is a Fitbit for a speech. Uh, we want to make sure that people is practicing even when you don't need to practice. Something that is not clear to many people is that uh, stuttering, like many other speech impediments, are chronic. So it's not that you can get rid of stuttering, although maybe some people can claim that. Uh, at least in my experience, it's something that you will have across your life. So looking at the ecosystem you've created, it does look quite a lot like a Fitbit. You've got a wearable that fits around your chest, which measures uh, speech, an app which records and analyzes data from the wearable. Uh, and then you have Bene, I think it's called Bene, the, the assistant who gives you tips and moral support. And then you have the online speech therapist, which is this real life professional that can help you sort of achieve your goals. So it's interesting. It's a really complete offering. 
Well, I, I am very grateful that you understood everything from the website. Then I think it's quite clear then. <laughs> so, I mean, the reason why we call it Bene is because uh, I believe that uh, human nature is not still prepared to understand whether you are speaking with a human or a robot, um, even though uh, we still need to speak with humans, of course, but we cannot be with a, with a, with a speech language therapy all the time. So having a, a, an, an engine which it acts as a speech language therapy, even though you know that it's a robot, but it's with you all the time, it provides you this kind of comfort. But at the same time, the most important aspect, as you said, is what we do with the data that we collect. Um, as you said, uh, we, so breathing is a very important concept a very important area for speech therapy. But at the moment, uh, we put breathing in hold because uh, it's a very complex issue. Uh, actually, we started the project, um, this project, uh, we started with the name Respira, that means breathing in Spanish. So everything was about around breathing. But we find out that the complexity of breathing is quite... It's quite, um, it's another level of complexity higher. So what we focus at the moment is uh, slowing the speech down, which we find out with, uh, with a few studies that by decreasing your speech rate, you improve your breathing or your breathing increases. So um, there is some programs or some special, uh, speech therapy groups that they focus in five words per breath. Uh, which, in a way, if you translate this into speed, basically you slow the speed down. So um, there is a handful of techniques of speech therapy in the world, although people call it in different ways. So we are focusing at the moment in, in, a, in a couple of them, which they focus in uh, speaking slow. Not particularly speaking slow, but uh, it's a way that you speak uh, which is called prolonged speech method. And then um, what we do is basically we see what is the speaking pattern of these people, and then we see whether the person is using a fluency technique or not. We, that, we don't know whether a person uh, is struggling with the speech or not, as, as in, in a blockage, because we, this is something that we will do in the future. But at the moment, we can know if you are using a fluency technique or not, which basically is the comparison whether you go to the gym or not. If we are able to tell to the user that they are using a, a speech habit, this basically, it makes them to progress, basically, because they know that they are doing something about that. So, and then uh, there is the Fitbit part, which every day, so you can see whether you have been practicing or not. Right, okay, so the wearable can detect when a user practices a fluency technique, effectively. So so what happens then? Is the user reminded or prompted when they don't practice these techniques for a while? Yeah, so there is two levels of action that, 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 that we help here. One is uh, active and the other one is passive. So passive is just I, I wear the device and basically like, like your Fitbit. You wear the Fitbit. And then in the end of the day or in the end of the week, you see how many steps you have done, right? That is the passive one. The active one is the one that we provide real-time feedback. 
this is particularly important for for people who stand there because we are very much attached to our past experiences that we didn't uh, that we had a bad impact or we have a very negative impact of an experience so we, we have a, a, a concept called cancellation means that when you are in a situation and you are having a very strong block and you are not happy of how the situation goes you have two you have two options you have the option of going back and start again and start breathing and speaking slowly and try to use the techniques to, to, to improve your the message that you wanted to say. Or you just keep going and then you just um, keep going with your, with your stuttering, which most of the time will happen depending on your mindset. You finish that conversation very bad and you go home and you cannot sleep because you had this bad situation. Particularly, I'm speaking when you had an interview or you had um, a conference or something that you didn't do well. So cancellation for us means um, so giving real-time feedback and say, okay, I'm going to start again. And and you finish this 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 conversation that you had. Or at least you repeat again, right? And you try to repeat two, three times until it works. And because this is something that I, I think is very important that I, I should repeat this uh, again. We tend to use fluency techniques when we are in a struggle. And that is not the right way to do things. So it's like going to the gym. You need to go to the gym even though you are fine. So even though you don't need to. So when I am in a conversation, like for instance now, I need to use fluency techniques even though I don't need them. So if I start to speed up, it should tell me to remind. So I keep uh, building my habit. Because if I don't practice uh, when I need to practice during the day, then uh, it will this will beat me back one day. Uh, one day, no, sooner than later. So it's about using fluency techniques when you don't need to. Right. So uh, if I understand it, the, the passive part is like the step counter on a Fitbit. And that lets you know kind of how many times you've used a fluency technique throughout the day or the week. Uh, and that's measured via a wearable, which is connected to an app. And so that helps people say, okay, I, I practiced a lot today, or I could have practiced more, but it basically helps people keep account of how much, or how much they've practiced these fluency techniques. And then you have the active part, which you're which you're still developing, and that will encourage users, like actively encourage users, to use these fluency techniques. Um, so thinking about it, could you actually give an example of what a fluency technique is? Is it something that you practice kind of individually, like on your own, the way someone would work out in a gym, or do you need to practice in conversation with someone else? Yeah. So the, you should, as I say, you should practice all the time because if you only use them when you are in a stressful situation, then you it's not useful. But at the same time, um, I need so I don't need to do the work that I was doing before. For instance, I work very hard during two years uh, speaking like I am speaking now. So I had to had to speak like this during many many times, right? Uh, many many years. Uh, 
approximately five years. I, I used to go and speak with uh, 200 people per day, uh, 100 in the street, and then 100 during calls. Um, just to practice, yeah, just to practice, because many, many people with speech impediments are seen like introverts, but they are not introverts, they are just avoiding speaking. Uh, so what we do as well is we tell to the users how many words you speak during the day, basically, and you need to hit a target in the same way that I steps, right, for a Fitbit. It's really fascinating to hear about. You, you might have guessed by the questions I've been asking that this isn't a an area that I had too much kind of familiarity with before this interview. Um, and you've really painted a picture of what people with stutters kind of face on a daily basis and also the the breadth and depth of impact that this technology could could have. Mm. I mean, so something that I didn't mention, I think it's worth to mention, is that uh, our aim goal is to... To, to help the end user, uh, person who started like me. But now due to the COVID-19 impact, and this is something that we also had in the pipeline, um, we, we also took helping, we are focusing a bit more on the speech and language therapist because uh, this device at the moment, you cannot have the device and, and say, okay, well, this is going to help me all the time. No, you need to first understand the mindset and how it works, the speech and language therapy. So the end goal, yes, is to have less contact of a speech and language therapy, but at the same time, uh, at the moment, you need a speech and language therapy, right? So what we are focusing on the moment is on the maintenance side. But the, what what we are working now after the, after the, the, the situation that we are now is that the, we can give better data to speech and language therapists during and between sessions. So what I mean with this is that we can provide more high quality data during the online online therapy sessions, which are um, lost when you have face-to-face -face -face meetings, for, for instance, in the UK, there was only in the, on the NHS there was only one, actually two, two, two NHS areas where they used teletherapy in the whole UK. So the reason why they didn't use, they didn't use teletherapy, apart of the privacy for the privacy issue, issues, there is a lack of data that is, is missed uh, during the sessions. That is one thing, and the second thing is that we provide data during the therapy sessions. At the moment, what happened is the person who go to, to the session say, how was your week? Well, I had, it was okay, but on Tuesday I went to this meeting and I really struggled. What did you feel during this moment? Oh, well, I felt very bad. Okay, so we can have a very objective data during these sessions. So we help speech and language therapists to do a better work. And then we help the, the the, the end user on the maintenance side once the therapy is finished. So you're also looking at building AI into Benetalk to improve the personalization of the therapy. How will AI play a role here and what would a more personalized therapy program look like? Yeah, so, I mean, the AI aspect is, 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 is happening um, because 
this is what we are using with the data that uh, we are collecting. So um, with the data that we are collecting, we are building a model and trying to understand what happened. Because something to have to declare is we don't know what the person is saying because if you, both of us will be now in the same room, it will be detecting me only, not you. So um, that is the important concept about our product. So it is very personalized in a way that it detects only me speaking, not you. Because we are not detecting words, we are detecting just shape or patterns of the voice. Um, we need to develop um, AI algorithms to see what this pattern means. Uh, this pattern is also linked uh, with your heart rate. Um, so your speak pattern, your pausing, your heart rate. But in the near future, as we said, it's going to be also breathing. So what happens when you mix all these components? And what is the end, 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 end output of that? Because uh, something that we need to really focus is as I said, is we, not, we don't need to focus on fluency. We don't need to say people need to be fluent. What we need to do is we need to help people to speak without suffering. And that is the end goal. So if you are struggling with your speech, if you are not happy, you are, you are speaking and you are suffering, then uh, you have to do something about it, right? If you are stuttering in a controlled manner, which is one of the techniques, which is a very powerful technique to, to stutter in a controlled manner, but with certain techniques. Uh, that, that, that is a very useful thing because I am free of my cage, right? So, mm. so, so that, 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 that is where, where the AI will come in. But in order to do a lot of AI, uh, we need a lot of data. Um, we are going to start collecting data with the University of Reading research, research study that we started, and Microsoft have helped us a lot um, building the models um, that we need to do. So we are on the first baby steps at the moment of what the end technology can do. Because something to have in mind is that speech and language therapy is a very complex area, and no one has done something like this before. That was Jordi Fernandez, CEO of Bene Talk. I highly recommend going to Bene Talk's website to look at all the awesome information they've got there, including a really cool explainer video showing how the technology works. The website is benetalk.com, B-E-N-E talk.com. All right, over to Amy for our next interview. Thanks, Rob. Next up, I'm chatting to Ben Wilkins, CEO of GoodBoost. GoodBoost was designed to help people suffering from musculoskeletal problems as well as other physical difficulties. It is a water-based rehabilitation program that uses AI to personalize treatment for each user. But there's more to it than that. Here's Ben. GoodBoost is a social enterprise. Uh, we're a team of physios, researchers, and engineers. We started the company about two years ago with a, with a mission to design, develop, deliver, uh, community health services to improve people's musculoskeletal health. Excellent. So your your team are actually our, our physios and researchers. Um, yeah, and, and and tech engineers as well. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about GoodBoost? Sort of how a user will interact with it. 
Sure. So, um, so I think I, I probably should explain what musculoskeletal is first of all, because it's not the most common word. So musculoskeletal is a, is a big umbrella term um, to define everything from back pain, knee arthritis, uh, to much more complex inflammatory joint conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we do is we support people with musculoskeletal conditions to be active. Uh, and the way we do that is we work with swimming pools. So we work to transform public pools into therapeutic spaces using the clinical technology we build. And the way that looks is that with the pools that we work in partnership with around England uh, and soon to be the rest of the UK is that we provide them with the equipment, the water tablets and the software and the training for their on-site staff to deliver group sessions of therapeutic aquatic exercise. So for our participants, what it looks like is they're coming along to a community physiotherapy service, uh, but there isn't a physiotherapist there is one of the exercise instructors or even sometimes volunteers and reception staff that have been trained to deliver these group sessions where it's the technology creating individually tailored and personalized rehab programs for people in the water. Okay, so so if I'm not mistaken then there's kind of two prongs as to how you how you interact via Good Boost. What one is through the actual I guess delivery of hardware and training and then the second is through the AI which is looking at um, personalizing people's experiences. That's exactly it. So um, I think it's even more relevant now in terms of how we've had to respond to the current COVID-19 um, mm. pandemic is that so we developed the, um, the clinical algorithms and the AI that creates these personalized programs that evolves and adapts week to week based on people's feedback. Just like going to see a clinician or a doctor or a physio is that ongoing evolution of the program based on things that work and don't work, things that hurt and aren't e- are easy or not easy. And that means it, it keeps progressing people. And kind of the holy grail of, of rehab and, and physiotherapy op- uh, exercise is that people are progressing at the most optimal rate as possible. Too slow and you've lost some of the benefit. Too fast and you have the risk of injury. Um, so how do you how do you manage that through a piece of software? So that's one way one way that we do it. The other side, you're right, is is that operational side that we create a, a tangible community service. This isn't just an app you can download. You can go to your local pool. You meet real people, um, interact with other people with health conditions and and joint problems and back pains, just like you. And it's that group community feel that we deliver through working in partnership with swimming pools that people love, and we deliver something we couldn't do um, just through people downloading an app. Are you, who's your main sort of, I guess, user group? Are you looking at people who are dealing with issues due to aging or are you looking at people who are maybe, I don't know, recovering from major surgery or is it all of the above? Yeah, all of the above. I I think the unique thing, when we started out, we thought it was going to be young people, uh, 20s, 30s, 40s, working professionals. um, And actually, uh, within a couple of weeks, we realized that it was uh, 50, 60, 70, 80 year olds um, who had uh, joint problems, um, classically mm. uh, different forms of arthritis in knees and hips, people who were coming out post joint replacement surgery and uh, wanted to do something themselves to maintain their rehab uh, in the right direction. So we work with mostly people between the age of 55 to 80, I would say, which is quite unique given um, mm. we've become, uh, we were paper based originally, but we've become a, a med tech organization. 
um, and to be designing software uh, at people between the ages of 60 to 80 on average, uh, we've had to be really, we've had to really think through um, the design, the UX, the UI uh, to make it work for people who are quite low in confidence sometimes using technology. I want to go back to a little bit to the user experience. Um... Because I know that the idea behind this is that you use AI to individualize their experience. So if I were a person going to my local pool to participate in a program, I I know you mentioned that there will be other people there maybe who are also working through their programs and that there are also people who are trained there. So so what what would that be like? Would I be doing something different to others? I I guess that's the case since it's individualized. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. There are... 10 to 20 people in the pool, each having their own tablet in front of them. uh, So they all have their own completely unique and tailored program. Uh, So it's a little bit of controlled chaos. You've got a bunch (laughs) of people doing completely different things, um, some of them at different times, but it works. uh, And it works in a way for, in terms of an experience, the reason why we've worked so well in pools is because Unlike having an instructor on the side of the pool saying, left arm up, right leg out, step, come on, faster, people get the chance to go to their tablet, see what they need to do for their exercises, what the next one is, or what equipment they'll need, get prepared and ready, press start, and they can go off and speak to someone. So they'll have a chat about the weather or the football or bake-off on the weekend that was on TV. (laughs) And because there's no loud pumping music, there's no instructor to keep your eye on to make sure you're keeping up, people can form really good relationships and create social circles and as a result what we see is organic self-support groups um, in a way you would not have if everyone had to focus on what legs being moving right or left next Uh, the other great thing is that you're not trying to keep up with the group we work Mm. with a lot of people who have very poor mobility around a third of our participants uh, register as not being able to walk more than 100 meters Um, not even a walking class would be suitable for this person that's often the low-hanging fruit that's offered to people is to join a walking group for a third of our participants this would not be an option so going to a group exercise class is a really daunting thing Mm. so the ability to take part in your exercise at your pace and not feeling you have to keep up with the instructor or everyone else means that we've created something that feels really accessible. Um, and that's the kind of that's the culture and community that exists in all the pools around the country we work in. Um, it's completely open to all abilities. Um, and it, the, your program will adapt and flex based on your feedback to make sure it's right for you. I have a lot of respect for that, being people being able to take like personal control over their um, the pace at which they exercise. I think that's that's really important, especially when it can be a bit intimidating. Things like a swimming pool can be a bit of an intimidating place to go along. Um, so that's really good. So, so I guess the, when I when I think about the difference between your program and like a traditional aqua size class or something, mm-hmm. that other than the the personalized bit, which is a huge piece. I mean, that's a huge benefit. But there's also that. Uh, yeah, there's also that additional benefit of having your own control over your own, I guess, learning. And it's not just that. It's la- it's, you have never heard so much laughter in exercise class. <laughs> um, there are people telling jokes, telling stories in little groups, going off. Um, people 
it's like being part of a support network and yeah that's what we've created that's what we've enabled if they went to a traditional exercise class in water they would not have had the conversation that they, that they can have with people because of the environment we've created and so people come back week after week to see tom to see jane and whoever it is there because they want to see them again or they don't want to let them down because they're not there and one of the biggest challenges of technology particularly within the health space particularly around exercise and physiotherapy is that Apps don't heal people. People do. And it's people's engagement with technology that is the reason why that app or that that digital service will make a difference. I love that. Apps don't heal people. People do. (laughs) That's a great quote. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about the AI um, that's kind of working behind the scenes? So it works similar to a, a, a... a clinical consultation. Um, it's when you arrive for your first session, uh, it will ask you um, a list of questions based on where is the problem? How long have you had it? How severe is it? Do you have a formal diagnosis? Um, if not, here are some more questions you want to understand more, more around it to come to some hypothesis of what it may or may not be. Um, so it's going through a hypothesis generation uh, and then through that, identifying where are the risk factors where are the areas that uh, we are called red flags to make sure that mm. we no one is taking part in a movement or activity, uh, which isn't appropriate for them. And then really narrowing down to go, well, we know actually from published research and from our data set, you've got this condition in this area of the body and these exercises or these types of exercises are generally beneficial. Uh, so we're going to give you that selection first of all. And then from giving people that selection, and so we always make sure they're safe and suitable, when they go and complete those exercises, we gather more feedback. So there's a continual feedback Mm. loop, which means that we understand that if they enjoyed it, uh, if it was painful, if it was uncomfortable, uh, maybe it was uncomfortable in a different part of the body that we weren't even targeting. Um, For example, you were doing an exercise design for your knee, but the way that you had to hold them to the side of the pool, it was your shoulder hurting. So Mm. by gathering that feedback, we can then make sure that we're tailoring it by understanding which vectors of movements at which joints are either beneficial or problematic. And that's how we tweak and evolve it week to week, session to session. So I guess a, a little bit about, about you and, and how you got involved in this project. I know you have a background in osteopathy and musculoskeletal science. So I'm just wondering how this became, how this became a, a project that you got involved in. Yeah, I, I guess it happened because just being aware of the size of the problem. Um, so one of the roles is I'm an MSK champion for Versa Arthritis, one of the representative charities in the UK for musculoskeletal conditions. And the size of the problem is just was just growing. Uh, there are 18, nearly 19 million people in the UK with an MSK condition. Um, it uh, costs around five billion pounds of the NHS. There's about wow. 100 billion pound uh, cost the economy because of lost working days um, and second it's only second to coughs and colds in the main reason for days uh, for working days lost so it's this huge wow. problem um, that people often don't appreciate how big a problem this is so sure. it, it was being aware of that and seeing people in Oxford that were not able to be active on land because their condition meant that even day-to-day tasks were difficult and seeing patients uh, day to day, uh, week to week, meant that there was a real need for them to be active, but nothing was appropriate uh, on land mm. at least. And giving people a sheet of exercises to take home 
meant that there was no motivation to do it. So sure. when you've got a lot of people as well who are waiting for hip and knee replacement surgeries, to be active before surgery is, can be really beneficial um, in terms mm-hmm. of not just around improving overall physio- physiological health, um, but uh, improving the strength and mobility of, of the other leg to make sure that post um, surgery, you'd have that additional function to manage your rehab and exercises on the leg that had the replacement. Uh, but there was a real gap because land exercise could be so painful for people. And it was just the realization and then inviting a couple of people with MSK conditions to come to the local pool in Oxford just to see if it was a good idea. So mm-hmm. we put a call out to a couple of people and said that they'd like to come along. Um, this is when we run some sessions and people loved it. Uh, they invited friends, they invited family members, husbands, wives to join them because they enjoyed it so much. Uh, the whole idea back then was, could we use a local public pool to deliver exercise that was low impact, um, that was suitable for people who would otherwise find even walking difficult uh, to do an, in, in, uh, do an individual program just for them. But this, the way it was individualized back then, it was either an osteopath or a physio at poolside providing those exercises before they got into water to give them that personalized program. And mm. people felt the benefit. We had the feedback that people um, had their pain reducing. They could, were functionally better. Um, they told us that they um, stopped seeing that they didn't go to see their GP appointment or cancel their GP appointment because they didn't feel they needed anymore. So once we had that feedback, we knew on something really interesting. Uh, the challenge we had is that we had no idea how to grow and scale it because we just couldn't replicate us as a team. Um, and physios are in, sh- in high demand and there is a chronic global shortage of I was going to say that that's got to be costly too to yeah. have a physio like at every single one of these exactly so that was that was so that was how it started it was all paper-based all clipboards um but the moment we started to hear get feedback from people that they felt the benefits um and people just kept attending uh they didn't want to stop coming along that was when we realized that this wasn't just a short-term trial a little uh, it was a community research project back then um we wanted to see how we could make this something that was viable cost effective uh, and could um, and could scale to more pools, but without the need of us being there. I was wondering if you had any kind of stories about maybe a user who has uh, who you've spoken to who has like a personal journey or personal story about how this has helped them or changed their life. So I'm, we've had loads. Um, there are a couple kind of stand out. Someone from Oxford, one of the ones that probably started when we just started using kind of clinical algorithms and AI about three years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was, it was called Bridget. And I was there, I was there at this session and I'm very rarely in the pools these days. Mm -hmm. Uh, But back then I was still visiting a lot of the pools and Bridget came in, walked through um, with her walking aid and she had some real challenges. She Mm. She struggled to walk in. Um, she'd previously had some uh, neck fractures. Uh, she was dealing with a lot of musculoskeletal kind of mobility joint challenges. Uh, and she just said she wanted to give it a go. So I was happy that overall she was safe, even though she had poor mobility and she got in the pool and she loved it. And Bridget <laughs> has not stopped coming back in three years. Uh, and it's the poster the po- girl. Yeah, um, Bridget can Bridget is now walking uh, uh, with with a with a confidence and uh, a, a mobility that 
there was no way she could have done three years ago. Uh, she wow. told it to her GPs, her physios, the benefits she's had. And she attends twice a week now at one of the pools in Oxford. Um, but it's completely transformed her life. She's lost five stone or so as well in, in weight. Um, it's transformed her body, her outlook. And the most amazing thing is that Bridget has become such a core part of some of the, of the Oxford classes. Um, and people come along because she, they know Bridget's there. Uh, and it's, <laughs> it's been great to see participants who, who, who now own it. It's theirs. Um, so Bridget's been fantastic. Thank you, Ben Wilkins, for giving us a view on how physiotherapy can potentially function in the future. To find out more about Good Boost, you can visit their website at goodboost.org. And now we hear from Kweku. Over to you. Thanks, Amy. Next up, I'm speaking to Akshat Kulkarni, CEO of Orxagrid. Orxagrid is using a combination of advanced machine learning algorithms and IoT sensors to produce detailed analytics about our energy networks and the demands placed upon them by next generation technologies. Here's Akshat. The energy networks are changing quite dramatically, right? So if you look at the UK, for instance, um, you know, we are, we would want, we want to have more electric vehicles connected to the network. Um, you also see a larger uh, increased interest in solar, wind connections and so on. So, right. so the challenge in, in connecting all these new types of energy sources is that now, the network wasn't designed for this, right? It's a, the, the grid was set up over 100 years ago in many cases. So trying to, um, to connect these sources, which are quite unstable, uh, it's, it's a big challenge for the electricity companies. So what we do is we help the electricity companies um, increase the, uh, to, to be ready for the future and increase their, um, their supply from uh, different sources of energy, and uh, we and we do this through our mainly through our data science based uh, software platform that we have, and okay. through this they can see the insights on what is going on in the network, and if there are any problems, then we we predict and report them before they happen. Right, right. And so, um, what kind of um, issues would uh, Orxagrid identify? So the the issues that we identified they 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 fall in three main categories. Uh, so the first category is what we call as the energy efficiency category or the energy uh -huh. efficiency app. So in this, we give various insights such as uh, you know, where are the losses happening on the grid side. That's the first category. Uh, the second one is uh, our asset health category. In this, we predict if any um, equipment that's on the network, that equipment may have any problems or is not working optimally. And then, and then the third one is the, the fault category where we predict any power outages that may take place in the future. Oh, okay. So there's a future predictive um, element to this as well. Interesting. Okay. And um, in order to do this, I, I read that um, you're using a combination of IoT and machine learning slash AI. How does that system fit together? Yeah. So, so the, the main component is the, the AI component, right? Where we predict the occurrences of any problems or any any strange events on the, the grid network. So, but in order to get the data that we need for the, the, the AI models, um, we either take it from the existing data sources. So in some, some utilities, they, they may have some sensors deployed or some software systems deployed. 
But in a lot of cases, uh, this real-time data is not available, uh, high-quality real-time data, and that's when we deploy our sensors as well. So the idea is to get uh, data from different points, uh, but 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 the more data that we have that we have, the better the accuracy of the predictions would be, right? So that's that's where the sensors and then the the AI platform fits in. I mean, it's, it's kind of um, crazy to think that there are these huge energy networks that are operating right now as normal without any kind of um, monitoring tools to, to work on. Yeah, no, no. So there are, the, there are monitoring systems deployed. Um, so if you look at the, 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 uh, the national level system, right? Uh, if you look at the national grid, which is the, the, uh, the, the, the system operator for the UK, they, of course, have different um, sensors and different monitoring systems deployed across their, their critical high voltage points. But, okay. but what I'm talking about is uh, when, when a, uh, if you look at where solar or where electric vehicle charging station is connected, um, mm. this is typically all the way at the end of the network. So it's essentially the final point of contact before energy reaches uh, the end consumers. So I'm talking about the local network points, and these points traditionally weren't monitored because you know previously there wasn't really a need to monitor these points. Uh, we call them the the low voltage and the, the medium and low voltage side of the networks. Mm-hmm. So it's these points that we are monitoring, and these are the points that we are analyzing because that's where the biggest change is going to come in. And can you tell me a little bit about what those changes are going to look like? I mean, uh, for somebody who doesn't know too much about the uh, the national grid, admittedly, um, to me, the appearance of um, electric charging points for electric vehicles seems to be quite a small thing right now. Same thing with um, things like wind farms as well. But what is the level of the change that we're about to see? The change that's going to come in is, or rather, rather, it's already come in, is the fact that um, if you just look at consumers, right? Consumers yeah. are are demanding consumers such as you and I. We we want a more sustainable uh, form of energy, and mainly because we we want to um, protect the climate and uh, make sure that uh, the carbon emissions are reduced. Uh, but in order for this to happen, there is a uh, there are various policies that are coming in, such as the UK government has announced that that uh, the level of carbon you know, needs to go down to a certain level by 2030, which is 10 years down the line, and, mm-hmm. and another goal um, down in 2050. But in order to achieve this, there would need to be a faster uptake of uh, low carbon technologies. And, and all, most of the low carbon technologies are going to be connected each other through the existing grid network right and that's why the role of the the energy grid electricity grid so uh, you know I'm, we're talking about the distribution network operators their yep. role is going to be very critical in making sure that that this change takes place in the in the time that is required to happen absolutely okay i understand so um regardless of whether there's a huge uptick in the number of electric vehicles and um, a lot of uh, inclination from clients to want to buy more sustainable types of energy. If the actual um, grid itself is not set up to deal with that um, change in, uh, in demands, then we can't move forwards um, as, a, uh, as a population. 
Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and that, that's that's a big challenge that the energy companies are facing. But but what's making this uh, this even more difficult is the fact that, and I mentioned earlier, that, that some of the, the the parts of the network were installed or set up a hundred years ago. Uh, a lot right. of the assets that they have are 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 past their maximum life or or are mm-hmm. also aging quite rapidly. So the the older the the network, the more chances of problems or failures, right? So yeah. and so, so on one hand you have a higher chance of failure from an aging network, and on the other hand you have um, in a, uh, a, a an increased uh, uh, requirement of energy from electric vehicles. I um, see, and also a changing way of energy that is supplied or generated through solar and wind installations. That's so, so it's 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 multiple uh, yeah. issues happening at the same time, or will be happening at the same time. I'm um, sat in uh, self-isolation in the UK at the moment. And I think probably what a, lot, what a lot of our listeners will think of when they think of power outages is the Wi-Fi going down. But it's clear that there are going to be some far more um, serious ramifications of power outages or of, um, of problems or security breaches in a network than just consumer electronics and um, and internet connections. What kind of um, what kind of serious issues are you identifying for your customers um, and and preventing for them in their networks? Yeah, no, that's that's a good question. I mean, if I just if you just look at the example now, uh, right? The in the last one month, the way um, energy is consumed has dramatically changed. Right, because you know, before we were going to offices, so the the, the energy loads, or the, the the way energy was used is quite different earlier, right? You had a an office sort of a pattern, right? Where at um, the areas where the offices were there, that's that saw a big peak in energy usage. Whereas at at the residential regions, the energy usage was quite low during the daytime. But now that's that's not the case anymore, right? Because we're all working from home, so that means. Um, the energy companies are uh, the, the 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 forecasters and the, the data scientists are working extra hard to make sure that they capture these these changing forecasts of energy demand and make sure that the supply is is there so that in no no power outages or reliability issues take place. So they they they're already working quite hard. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I suppose that's probably where your AI comes into its element as well, because um, particularly with turbulent times such as these and where big changes are happening on the networks um, or the, within the usage of the networks, you'll now be able to model um, what those changes will look like moving forward and how um, the network providers can uh, deliver the most efficient um, and secure service moving forward. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right, and that's what we we uh, that's exactly what we offer, which is um, taking analyzing any sort of data that they have. So in this case, it's going to be um, energy usage data or, or usage patterns, and then taking these external events into consideration. So in this case, it's a COVID nineteen uh, external event. And then, then modeling it to make sure that uh, the the energy demand and supply are met at every point of the network. So that's that's what we're doing. Um, I, I do have, I have an interesting example as well. If you look at India, um, the, the the type of lockdown that they've done in India is is far more severe than, than probably anywhere in the world. So 
So, so practically every person, they've, they've shut down all the manufacturing, shut down all, most of the industries, and and everybody is at home without even, you know, the, the, the one-a-day uh, exercise. Yes. Um, and then we have we are monitoring one area in India, which is an industrial area. Um, so if I look at it in terms of units, it's a it's, it's a ten megawatt area. So it's 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 a significantly large uh, energy consumption area. Sure. So as soon as the lockdown was announced, the energy drop, the demand dropped from ten megawatts down to one megawatt. Um, the the next day itself. So this is twenty second or twenty third of March. Uh, that's that's a huge drop, nine megawatt, right, drop, yeah. massive drop. Um, and then um, the the government announced uh, a a program or an event where they said that at Sunday nine pm the entire country will be shutting down, should shut down their lights, uh, in as as is sort of a solidarity where everybody shuts down the yeah. lights and uh, for nine minutes. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, so nine minutes, the whole country was asked, requested to turn off the lights and then light candles, um, and then turn the lights back on after nine minutes. Uh, I mean, this is but this is a huge problem for the energy system <laughs> operators. No? So if you if you if the entire country is just switching off the lights at the same time, yeah, chance that the network may may have severe uh, problems and lead to a much longer power outage. That, that's a really interesting example. Um, it, it leads nicely onto my next question, which is looking um, looking five years into the future. Um, if you see the the capabilities that Auxigrid has um, as a system now, uh, where do you see um, the this particular industry in five years' time, and and what kind of big changes do you think that we can expect? Right. So five years down the line, right? So. Uh, what what we saw in the what what we are seeing now because of the pandemic, uh, this this is an indication of how important a a uh, a stable energy supply is for our day to day operations. So uh, the big change that I think is going to happen um, is the fact that a lot of the energy network would need to be. Uh, a uh, well, future proof by by the uh, by to to allow renewables and low carbon technologies connected. But the other more important thing is uh, is automation. So with uh, with with consumers, uh, with people working from home, or in lots of cases, uh, uh, traditional industries probably won't need, won't be working the way they've been working. Um, okay. If I look at the energy network itself, there would be a certain level of automation that would come in where uh, through sensors and through the data collection points, the systems would be able to identify what is happening uh, instead of having somebody go there and manually check the readings and make sure everything is working. So I do see five years from now, uh, a lot of automation in the network, uh, a lot of decisions taken based on data um, mm. and a lot more um, well, the, the most obvious thing is we see a lot more electric vehicles that are that are connected to the grid network. Uh, Akshat, you mentioned that uh, through the work that you're doing with Microsoft AI for Good, you're engaged uh, with Auxigrid in a project in Uganda. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, yeah, we are we are part of the Microsoft AI for Good program. Um, we are 
in Uganda, we we uh, there was one utility uh, that approached us. It's a it's a newly created utility that is that is providing electricity to uh, roughly fourteen thousand uh, rural consumers in the western part of Uganda. So right. this was traditionally a fairly um, economically underdeveloped area, but the utility is very eager to to work with innovative companies that can help them uh, a make uh, a make their existing energy supply more efficient and b uh, improve the economic condition of the region so so they, it's a very forward thinking utility uh, and, and yeah and and, and they uh, we we happened to to start discussing a couple of months ago uh, they shared some data, data, and, and firstly, we were very much impressed with the amount of data they've been collecting. Uh, in our experience, the, the type of data they had was uh, at par, or in some cases, better than a lot of the data sources we saw in, in more developed uh, utilities. So that was, that was a good starting point. And for us, you know, having uh, access to good data means we can do a lot more, in, uh, derive a lot more insights out of it. So we're helping them uh, minimize their losses on the grid. So losses in terms of both technical, commercial losses. Okay. And B, we are trying to find out how this utility can can provide energy in a way where some of the consumers can can increase their say in, say in one case increase their agricultural output by putting uh, water pumps uh, funded by the the utility, but at the same time, the utility oh, gets some you know, gets some revenue back over a period of time as the, the consumer generates uh, generates a, a positive revenue through through the, the the outputs that they produce in the agricultural fields. That was Akshat at Orksagrid. Great speaking with you, and thanks for coming on the show. To find out more about the work that Orxagrid is doing to accelerate the evolution of our energy networks, please visit orxagrid.com or follow them on Twitter at Orxagrid. And that brings us to the end of this episode of AI for Good. Thank you very much for listening. Um, unbelievably, we've only got one episode left of this mini-series. It's nearly been a month already, which is crazy. But we do have one episode left that's coming out on Thursday, the 28th of May. So make sure you subscribe so you get the episode as soon as it comes out. I promise you won't want to miss it. And as always, if you're interested in learning more about anything we've talked about on this show, don't forget to check out the show notes. We work hard to put a bunch of interesting content in there. So definitely check it out if you want to learn more. All right. Thanks again. We'll see you in a week's time for the last episode of the miniseries. Bye for now.